0: names once again. Um, I'm aware you've been sitting for a little while. Would you like to s- stand up, stretch your legs, take a swig of water? Um, I'm aware it's a hot day and that sort of thing can really help, can't it? Um. Brilliant, do take a seat. And um, if we've not met, if you're new, if it's your first time here, um, welcome. Uh, my name's Andy. I'm the minister here at uh, CCB. And um, over the next uh, few weeks, we're doing something slightly different. Normally, we, we pick a book of the Bible and uh, we preach our way through it, passage by passage by passage, um, and working our, our way through it. Um, but for uh, last week, we began a series, which is going to over the next couple of weeks, where we're doing a topical thing. We're, we're choosing a theme and seeing what the whole Bible says uh, about this theme. We don't normally do that, but we thought that, you know, with it sort of winding down, people starting to go on holidays, uh, numbers a bit lower, uh, we, we thought it would be interesting to, to do something slightly different. And the theme we've been thinking about is is. is what it means to be a growing church. We've grown as a church, and that, that means we need to think about that and, and think what the Bible says about that. And there are, there are gains to that, but also there are pains to that. That's why we call this series Growing Pains, Growing Gains. Um, so if you're settled, if you have your, your Bible open at Nehemiah 3, uh, you'll see a handout in your service sheet. Why don't I, uh, I lead us in prayer as, uh, as we make a start? Father God, thank you for gathering us today. We thank you for the warm weather. Uh, we thank you for your, your love for us, shining upon us. But we pray today we would hear you speak. I pray, Lord, that each of us would feel deep, deeply loved, personally loved, personally valued by you in your church family, uh, within your people, within this church. So, Father, whether we're new uh, or whether we've been here for many years, Lord, each of us, please speak to us by your Spirit, show us the Lord Jesus Christ in this unusual passage, and we pray that in Jesus' name, Amen. So, this last week, I came across a very old film shot in 1995. Hands up if you were born it, you know, after 1995. yeah, some of you there. No, it's an old film. It's called Mr. Holland's Opus. And uh, Let me ruin you, the plot for you. Um, it, it's about a, a music teacher set in the mid-1960s and he has his heart set on being a great composer. He's writing an opus which he believes is going to make him wealthy and famous. But then out of nowhere his girlfriend falls pregnant and suddenly realizes he can't be a, a standalone musician. He needs to find a steady job, steady work. So he does what many musicians do, he becomes a secondary school music teacher. And uh, he rather reluctantly does this in the hope that he can finish his opus in, in his free time. Now the rest of the film sort of tracks his career, because of course it doesn't quite work out the way he expects. Mr. Holland remains stuck as an underappreciated music teacher, and we follow his career and his life throughout the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s. And in the end, we see him fighting a losing fight against the Board of Education. They want to shut down the music department altogether because they need to replace all, that, all those resources, all those monies, to more important subjects like maths and English. So he fights this fight against the Board of Education and he loses. And the film ends with him walking out of the school, shoulders rounded, walking out visibly dejected, feeling undervalued, feeling not wanted at all. In the penultimate scene, he's talking with his friend, the coach. He says this, you work for 30 years because you think that what you do makes a difference. You think you matter to people. So then you wake up the next morning and you find out that actually you're expendable. I begin with that because there is a danger that as churches grow in size, grow in number, there is a danger that we develop many Mr. Hollands. We develop people who feel undervalued and feel underappreciated. We have developed people who, who feel that their distinct abilities and gifts are being dismissed, uh, whilst other people are doing the more important work. People who feel that in the end, they're just expendable within the church family. Now, I've been thinking, why is that? Why is it that as churches grow, often this sort of thing happens? And I wonder if it's because over time, churches can develop a sort of subconscious hierarchy of gifting. So whether it's driven by our surrounding culture or maybe the personality of the pastor, we can begin to think that Christian maturity takes on a particular shape. It looks a particular way. So maybe for churches like ours, we might begin to think that being a mature Christian looks like being a Bible study leader. Or, or maybe it, me, it looks like being a particularly outgoing and, and gregarious sort of person. But what if you don't have teaching gifts? And, and, and what if you're not, and never going to be that outgoing, gregarious sort of person? Does that mean you're expendable? Does that mean you can never reach maturity? So the tragedy is that all too many churches consist of a small group of people who consider themselves to be doing the important work was a whole bunch of fringe people just sit around spectating. That's the danger, isn't it? As churches grow. And so newcomers might arrive and they might see this church as a hubbub of activity and they think, well, Am I needed here? Will I be valued here? Will I be seen here? As you heard last week, um, over the last three years, the Lord has given us growth here at CCB. We've gone from about 70 adults to about 140 adults. And we know we're not the world's biggest church in the world, who, but, but we've grown and, and grown considerably from, from what we were. And that means we really, we're really having to rethink now what that means about how we should organize ourselves. In particular, how we can ensure that every single person in this room who knows and loves Jesus, that every single person is valued and seen and feels like they're genuinely participating in the life of the church family and, and our mission to reach balance. So in our readings today, you may have um, noticed the, the common link between them. Uh, both are about building up. In our second reading in Ephesians, the church is described as the body of Christ. And then we learn that, that, that church leaders, uh, our job is like those supporting ligaments in the body. Our job is to ensure that as the church grows, it, it builds itself up in love. But this will only happen, we're told as each part does its work. We're to build ourselves up, but only as each part does its work. But we kind of preached in Ephesians last term. I'm aware of that. We preached the whole book, passage by passage, verse by verse. So I think you're pretty fed up with Ephesians by now. So I thought we we'd we'll look at the same sort of theme, but from a very different passage indeed. And in the book of Nehemiah, the same themes are developed. Um, let me just set the scene a little bit. A generation before uh, Nehemiah was around, God's people, the Israelites, had returned from exile in Babylon back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem. And shortly after their arrival, they began rebuilding the temple and rebuilding their homes. But then a generation passes, and Nehemiah, he's allowed to come back to Jerusalem. And, and Nehemiah the prophet, he looks at the Jerusalem people in Jerusalem and asks them, what are you guys doing? Brilliant, you've rebuilt the temple. Wonderful, you rebuilt the homes. But there's a glaring problem in that they haven't bothered to rebuild the walls. So look with me back at chapter 2. If you can look down in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 2. So I've got a page number, shouted out. Nehemiah chapter 2. 361, wonderful. Come on in, Martin. Nice seat right here. Page 361. And would you look at uh, chapter 2. And verse 17 with me. Then I, Nehemiah, said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Now, needless to say, an, an ancient city needed walls. If you're a city without walls, you weren't a city. And that's because if you didn't have walls, any army wandering past should just come in and take whatever they want. They can take your possessions. They can kill your sons. They can rape your daughters. Nothing's stopping them because you don't have walls. See, do you see the, the folly almost of, of building everything else apart from the walls? Nehemiah's going, we're, we're a disgrace to the nations. So the prophet stands up and he gets everyone working. He gets everyone building. And on paper, the, the task before them is, is just, just impossible. It seems overwhelming. If you can picture this city for, for 70, 80, 100 years, it just would have been rubble. Imagine these enormous boulders just lying around the edges of a, of, of a sheer cliff. That was the job facing them. It seemed impossible. And yet Nehemiah's confidence. He says in verse 18, the gracious hand of my God is on me. He says in verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. So in just 52 days, 52 days, just over a month and a half, this people in Jerusalem managed to rebuild uh, partially the walls of Jerusalem. And we might ask, well, how on earth did they do that? And you might be asking, well, how on earth can we build up the church? Given the similar difficulties which we might be facing in our own lives personally, or their own gifts, our own capacities, our own personality, we think, well, how can I contribute? How can I do anything? It seems overwhelming, perhaps. Well, we're going to see three things from this passage. Firstly, we build together. We build together. Now, Nicole did brilliantly, didn't she? Um, reading um, that, that first portion of, of names. And, and this might be one of those chapters, when you come across it in your quiet time, you just sort of skip over it. It's a list of unpronounceable names. What on earth do we, do we do with this, we might ask. But here we see team ministry in full force. So when Nehemiah calls for the city to be rebuilt, notice who kicks it off in chapter 3 and verse 1. Who gets to work first? Verse 1. Eliashib... The high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now Eliisha, the high priest, he was a really, really important guy. He's possibly one of the most important people in the city. And yet hearing Nehemiah's call to get up and build, that's what he does. He arises, he, he takes off, if you like, his fancy, fancy-schmancy, high priestly robes. And along with the other priests, they put on work clothes, roll up their sleeves and get to work. No longer dealing with the temple stuff, now they're shifting boulders, heaving them uphill, cementing them in place. The an extraordinary thing for an important man like this to do. But notice, after they rebuild the walls, after they um, reset the gates, they dedicate it or consecrate it. They, they recognize that this seemingly mundane, laborious work is, is, is holy work, is good work, is the work which honors the Lord, It's set apart for the Lord. They know he's smiling upon them as they do it. Now, maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, okay, they're high priests, so it's not really surprising that they kind of got to work first. I mean, wasn't that literally their job? They were paid, they were set apart by the people in order to do the Lord's work. So, yeah, the paid ministry workers, well, they should be doing the work. Isn't it, isn't it obvious? But why didn't then Nehemiah just get all the priests to do all the walk? Right? I think it's just the job is just too big. There's no way the priest could have done it alone. The scale of the project required everyone to be involved in the project. And as we heard in our New Testament reading, that, that same pattern follows through. The job of church leaders, like myself, like Christian, our job is to equip the church to do works of service. We're not just doing all the ministry ourselves. No, we're to teach the Bible in order to equip the whole church had to do works of service and that's exactly what we see happening next look at the very next verse verse 2 the men of jericho built the adjoining section and zachar son of imri built next to them the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of hasenda or hasanar they, be- they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place now think about if you know your geography where is jericho Jericho is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. It's a completely different city. So the people of Jericho, they might have thought, well, we've got our walls. You know, we're pretty safe and secure here. Why do we have to go to Jerusalem and help them? They didn't think that, did they? No, they schlepped it 15 miles down the road and helped in the labor of the city. Uh, and they cared enough to do that. And, and Jericho wasn't the only city to do that. As you read through this long list, Tekoa, Gibeon, Mitzvah, Zenoa, they all muck in to this work. Uh, later, if you read on in verse 3, we see a whole family serving together. We read about the sons of Hasenza building the next section. And isn't it lovely seeing uh, Mark Taylor there with, with Jacob Taylor serving together. Um, on, the, on the table. And it's, it's a family ministry and that's, that's what we're seeing here. Uh, later on, we see people of various different professions trying their hand at wall building. I love it. If you look at verse 8, goldsmiths and perfume makers have a go at building the walls. See, so here's Dale from the perfume aisle. He gets called up. He goes, all right. So he puts down his CK1 or whatever it is. He's trying to flog and spray in people's eyes as they walk past. He, he puts that down and he goes, right. And he pulls and puts on his overalls and he starts working too. He doesn't know anything about wall building, but he can learn on the job. And so Dale the perfume maker, off he goes to build the wall of Jerusalem. I think one of the biggest surprises in this long list is verse 12. Would you look at that with me? Shalom son of Haloshesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Now, it might not surprise you that in the ancient world, women didn't normally do all the manual labor. In fact, it's completely unheard of in the whole of the Bible. Uh, women doing this sort of thing. The, 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 women, the daughters of Shalom could have easily just sat this one out, saying that there's no precedent for us to be involved here. Yet they chose to give their strength to the shifting of rocks because they too wanted to serve the building up of the city, the building up of God's people. Essentially, what we see throughout this chapter is all of God's people, all of them, working together. The Lord doesn't need 1,000 highly trained, highly skilled masons and, and gate builders. He just needs ordinary people who have a heart to serve him. And I thank God that this, this is what we see at CCB. I thank God that this has always been the culture here at, at CCB. We, we don't have a, a paid staff team doing all of the work a sort of professional priestly class or something like that whilst everyone else simply spectates. No, we have an every member ministry. Our staff team are there to equip everyone in the work of service. We don't think you have to reach a certain level of skill and maturity before you can try a hand at trying to build up the church. No, we want everyone to be involved. Even if you're a young Christian or a new Christian, we'd love to have you serving and learn on the job just like the perfume maker. We don't exclude women here from serving and building up the church. No, we want women to use their gifts in the service of God's people. There's one phrase which is repeated throughout this chapter 25 times, again and again and again. It keeps on coming up. It's the phrase next to him, next to her, next to them, next to them, next to them, and next to them, I think it's, it's Nehemiah's way of saying that every single bit of this wall is needed. You Think about it. If you have a wall which is 95% complete, it's still a useless wall, isn't it? Because where are the, where's the invading army going to come in? In that 5% area. You need everyone doing their work. You need every bit of the wall in order for the complete city to be built. And so it is with the church. We need you. We need you. And you need us. We serve, if you like, shoulder to shoulder, to shoulder to shoulder with one another. In order to build one another up in love, in order to reach balance with the good news of Jesus Christ. As I've been preparing this chapter, I've been uh, reminded of one of my favorite uh, fantasy fiction novels, A Game of Thrones. So some of you may have read the book. The naughty amongst you might have seen the TV show, I don't know, can possibly comment. Um, but it, there's a, you can't help but be reminded of, of, of this book. There's, there's a bunch of people in the book called The Night's Watch. And their job is to um, build and defend the wall. And they're to defend this wall because uh, one side of them is, is, the, uh, is, is the realm of men. And on the other side of the wall is all the baddies and all the evil things. And they're guarding this wall. But what's interesting about the Night's Watch, this army, is that they call one another brothers. They call one another brothers and they, they treat one another like family. Which is strange because each of them come from completely different walks of life. Um, one person might be a high lord. The next person might be a commoner. Many of them are criminals. And they've been sent to the wall uh, uh, as a penalty for their crimes. They're utterly diverse in their makeup. And yet together, shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, these brothers, they, they build the wall. They defend the wall. Here at the wall, they get a new life. Their sins are forgiven, if you like. They get a new start. And in serving the wall, there's great dignity in it. So it is with the church. Through Christ, we've been forgiven. That's why we confess our sins every week. We're not people here who think we're brilliant. We know we're not. We're sinners who are forgiven. We're more than forgiven. We're adopted as brothers and sisters into the same family. And now, serving the same God and Father, we serve shoulder to shoulder with one another. We build together to build one another up in love and to reach Balaam with the good news. So if you're here today and you're a member of CCB or a part of CCB and you're thinking, I'm not really doing anything. Well, here's the thing, you could be and we really need you to be because we build together. Hannah and I are currently um, needing some new appliances in our kitchen and um, we've moved into our, our new kitchen and we need some, half our stuff doesn't work, so we need new appliances. And, and it, I, I gather all the rage these days is buying multi-use appliances, appliances which do multiple things at once. And I've come across some examples here. This is a TV toaster, uh, which you can buy. Apparently, there's one design flaw. If you leave it on for too long, it explodes because um, it, it can't quite do it all. Um, how about this, this one? This is um, a, uh, a complete Swiss army knife, every single tool you need. For every single task. It does every single task badly. Brilliant. You can buy one of those. Well, how about the Americans here? This is the gun phone. You can call your friends. You can shoot a baddie. Terrible idea. <laughs> I think they recalled them after a few mishaps. You see, the idea of multi-use, it doesn't always work, does it? So whilst it is true that as Christians, we're all Involved in the same business, building up the wall, building up the kingdom. God does not expect us all to be multi-use appliances where everyone does exactly the same thing. If we attempt to do that, we'll be like that, that toaster which just blows up and overheats. Or we'll be like that um, Swiss army knife which attempts to do everything and just excels at nothing. What we read in this passage and what we see throughout the whole Bible is that whilst we're all involved in the same task... We each serve in very different ways. We build, if you like, differently, and you see this in our passage. If you look down, where you see the people here building in very different areas. So in verse 11, Hashub gets up to rebuild the section of wall near the Tower of Ovens. Can you imagine what building near the Tower of Ovens might have been like. You can imagine as sort of um, that, that smell of bread baking. Of pies baking day by day, you know, it would have motivated him to keep on going, wouldn't it? Beautiful, gorgeous smells coming in. And then in verse 15, we meet Shallon, who gets to rebuild the section of the wall by the king's gardens. So imagine the smell of flowers and the buzzing of bees uh, making honey as, as he got to work. Glorious. But I'm guessing they probably have fewer volunteers for verse 14. The dungate. Anyone serve serving the dungate? Anyone? Thank yeah, we've got volunteers enough already for the tariff ovens. Thank you. Yes, we have the, the king's gardens. Anyone for the dungate? And up goes the hand of Malkijah. He sees the need for a dungate, and so he gets the work. So it is in church life. You know, some ministries are up front. They might seem very glorious. Other ministries behind the scenes, perhaps looking less Glorious, less impressive. Some gifts we, we hold in high esteem in different church cultures. Other gifts we, we might hold, hold in low esteem. But here's what the Apostle Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable we treat with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. So we praise God, don't we, for those who Sunday by Sunday by Sunday arrive early and leave late in order to set up and pack down. Without that unseen, unglorious, laborious ministry, none of you really could be here. Someone's got to set up the sound desk. The music students have to sort of tune up. Someone's got to put out all these chairs and make sure all the Bibles and the pens are out. Someone's got to print and fold the, the service sheet. There's an enormous amount of work, much of which isn't very impressive or glorious, but it needs to happen. But what about those who teach our children uh, Sunday by Sunday? Enabling uh, parents to be in here, enabling the children to hear about Jesus uh, in their own age group. Praise God for those who put their hand up to do things like health and safety or, or DBS checks. Again, absolutely necessary, but not at all glorious. We each have different areas of ministry, but each of them are noted down here. They're each seen by God. We also build with different capacities. Would you look at verse 13? The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoah. They re- rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Now a cubit, you know that page of the Bible no one knows what to do with, the measurements page. They tell you how much an ether is and you go, well, what use is that? Well, a qubit I think, is the length between your elbow and your wrist. That's one qubit. A thousand cubits is enormous. I think if we've got the map up here, you see that really, really big long bit by the valley gate to the dung gate. That's what Haran did. It's an enormous, enormous area. Imagine all that work, baking Middle Eastern sun. He had an enormous capacity, or so it seems. But by comparison, if you read on later to, to verses 28 and 29, People there might, might be feeling a bit bad comparing their work of Hanun uh, to those guys above it. So as you go, if you continue roundward, uh, roundwards um, uh, counterclockwise, you see all these, guys, all these other guys doing just little bits. It, each of them just building in front of their own house, we're told. They, they didn't have the same capacity as Hanun. They, they might be comparing themselves thinking, oh, I can't do what they're doing. And then compare those guys with the men of the city of Tekoa. In verse 5, they complete one section. You can probably see them uh, over there. And then the, later on, in uh, verse 27, they go on to complete a second section, that yellow area at the top. They do two sections of the wall. They're not content with one ministry. They go on to do a second ministry because they have compassion, they have compassion and capacity uh, to do so. And, and so it is in the life of any church. We all have different capacities, and that's okay completely fine for some of us because of our age or our health. Um, sorry, I pointed at you. Um, our health or, or, or our season of life—we we, we just can't do as much as we once did. I, I've stopped feeling guilty now that my capacity is nothing to what it was really before I had children. It, I really—I'm I'm able to. I think about 50% of what I did before I had kids, but that's fine because I have a different ministry now at home as well as in the church. We have different capacities. For others of you here, you, you might have loads of time. Loads of time. Loads of capacity. Loads of energy. You might be young and full of ideas. Praise God, we want to use you. That's why it's brilliant, isn't it, having students in the church? Because you have so much time to give. You might not think you have time, but believe me, you do. You have loads of time. It's really tedious when you're in connect groups and you go around and people pray and, and the students go, oh, I'm so busy, so busy. You're like, no, you're not. Um, but, you know, we grow in capacity, don't we? We grow in our ability to use our time wisely. Isn't it wonderful we've got students in our church and all that they do to serve and bless uh, the body here. It's wonderful. We're so grateful for them. And so in the life of the church, we're all working in different ways, but all towards the same end. And um, in the New Testament, we read that our, our unity as a church and our diversity it just reflects what our God is like. Our God is united. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in one God. And yet our God is diverse. The three persons of the Trinity, each doing a different thing in creation and redemption. They, they serve a different role. And that's so it is in the church. We have unity, oneness, and yet diversity, difference amongst us. And so it should be. In fact, if you think about it, that. The fact that we have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is human. He became human for us. It means he he is able to have empathy with us in our weakness, in our lack of capacity, in our tiredness. Isn't it good that we have a God who understands what it's like to feel weak? One of the things I, I want us to do as a church, off, off the back of this mini-series, is to each of us to think a little bit about our shape. Our shape. I'm not, I'm not talking about your, your figure. I'm not encouraging you to, to lose weight. Um, the, uh, I want us to think about our shape. And we've got this acronym here. Shape stands for spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, and experience. That is, how, how can you, as the person you are, and the character you have, the capacity you have, the gifts you have, how can you best serve the church and the people of Balaam who don't yet know Jesus. I know many of you, you've been at CCB for a while, and you might think it's pretty obvious what your shape is. It might be pretty obvious to you where it is best for you to serve, but a number of us are newer, and we might not know what that is. And You might think, well, oh, oh, I look so busy here. What, what, what do I do? What role do I have? Well, What I really want us to do is... Um, over the coming weeks in our connect groups or maybe with a friend, to have a little discussion about this, to think about each our own shape. We'll send out resources this week. And then after having that discussion, what I'd love us to do is to fill in a survey. Um, so next slide, Mark, if um, you could pull it up. What we want us to do is each of you to find your own shape through, that, uh, through the discussion, through thinking about it, fill in that survey, and then talk to us as a staff team. Because what we then want to do is start a conversation with you uh, t- to work out where is best for you to serve in the church. And we're not just going to whack a square peg in a round hole. We want you to thrive using your gifts in, in the way that best serves the body. Um, so that's something we'll be rolling out coming week. So do look out for that. Listen to your Connect Group leaders uh, as, they, uh, as they share that uh, with you over the summer. So we build together. We build differently. Lastly, more briefly, we build humbly. We build humbly. Now we began, didn't we, seeing how the high priest, the most important guy in the city, rolled up his sleeves and got to work. But maybe you noticed back in verse 5, there are some people who kind of broke the ranks, broke the enthusiasm. Did you see that in verse 5? The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under the supervisors. Tekoa was a small town about six, 16 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And we've heard the men of Tekoa are brilliant. They do two sections of the wall. But the nobles of Tokoa they would have been the wealthy landowners. They would have been the really important guys in the city. And they refused to contribute to the rebuilding of the walls. Maybe they thought this label was beneath them. Maybe they thought their gifts and passions best lie in management. We're more managerial types, really, than, than the sort of uh, laboring types. Maybe they feared the opposition from the Persians if, if they managed to succeed in building the wall. We don't know, but, but deep down this is a theological issue. It's a heart issue. You can translate verse 5 differently. You can translate it as to say, they would not bring their necks in service of their Lord. One of my nervousnesses about, is that a word, nervousnesses? One of my nervousnesses about using that, that shape survey is that we could be led to believe that we can only serve where our passions are and where our, where our particular gifts lie. And, and that's clearly the ideal, isn't it? We each excel where, where we're most able, we, we enjoy doing what we're good at. But if we only ever serve where we're passionate, well, who's going to build the dungate? Who's going to be the health and safety officer? Who's going to file all those DBS reports? Sometimes we serve not because the area of ministry is our particular passion. Sometimes we serve because there's a need. And we're motivated to do it because of Christ's passion. We follow a servant king. We follow a king who, who left the wealth and the, the, the power and the glories of heaven. And he entered our earth. And he suffered the indignity of dying on a cross. That's how he served us. As the hymn goes, this is our God. The servant king. And he calls us now to follow him. So Christians, we serve not out of a sense of duty, or we have to do this in order to feel like we belong. Uh, we, we don't serve for our own glory and all of that people might see us and think we're brilliant. We serve because we serve a servant king. We serve out of the joy of being forgiven and included in his people, included in his family. A few years ago, um, the illusionist Darren Brown posted this uh a uh, image on his Twitter feed it's a photo taken from 1947 it's of a girl in New York uh, at an orphanage kneeling beside a bed in prayer and above it you can probably see it says Jesus first, others second yourself last and Darren he's, a, he's an atheist and he held it up in derision and said isn't this awful isn't this horrible that this is the, the mantra which they would expect this poor orphan girl to live by and that's where everyone was thinking as they piled onto the Twitter feed. Until someone pointed out what probably was less obvious that the orphanage was built and run not by people who sought their own glory and status and fame, but by people who precisely put Jesus first, orphans second, themselves last. I think actually, if you think about it, it's a beautiful image. It spells out that acronym joy. Because ironically, we find joy not by serving ourselves, but by serving our king and, and his purposes in his kingdom. And actually, that's how the building of the wall ends. If you turn over the page to chapter 4 and look at verse 6. This is the conclusion of the matter. Verse 6 so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. So isn't it lovely that all these various men and women building these walls, isn't it lovely that as they worked in that humble, not very impressive way, that their names are recorded in eternity. Their names are recorded here for us to read. The names are recorded, which indicates they were remembered and they were seen. And they'll be rewarded. And you might know the very last chapter of the Bible describes the church, God's people, in imagery like a city. The Apostle John sees the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. He says it's the church, the people of God. And as he describes this city, he describes its walls. Walls which aren't just made out of rubble, but made out of silver and crystal—they're beautiful. And there are twelve gates named after the twelve apostles. And then we're not told this, but but I like to think that it, that each of those bricks on the walls, I like to think that our names are on each of them. You know, there's Dave on the setup team. Uh, there's Matt on the PA desk. <laughs> there's there's Darren, the, the Bible study leader. You can go on and on and on. I like to think that our names are seen in eternity, because our Lord God sees us. So that film I began with earlier, it was a bit of a downer until the very final scene. There, there he is, um, Mr. Holland, he's walking out of the school. He's feeling dejected, he's feeling like he isn't needed, he isn't wanted, he isn't appreciated, he isn't seen. But as he's walking out of the school, holding his box of belongings, he hears this thumping on the ground. Thumping, thumping, thumping. And he notices it's coming from the auditorium, an auditorium much like this, but bigger. And he walks in, and there he sees all of his students. All of his students from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. All of them there. And one particular student, a girl from the 60s, a particularly awkward girl who had no confidence, and Mr. Holland taught her to play the clarinet. She meets him in this, uh, in this theater, and she gives this almighty speech. Here's what she says. I came here today to say my thanks to Mr. Hollands. He had a great influence on my life and a lot of lives I know. And I have the feeling that Mr. Holland considers a great part of his life misspent. Rumor has it he was always working on this symphony of his. And this was going to make him famous, rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich. And he isn't famous. So it might be easy for him to think that he's a failure. And so he would be wrong. Because I think he has achieved a success beyond riches and beyond fame. Look around you, Mr. Holland. There is not a life in this room you have not touched. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and notes of your opus. We are the music of your life. So the film closes. With a man who thought he'd wasted his life, ignored, rejected, being seen and valued for his unique gifts that he brought to that school. If you're here today and your remember needs to be and you feel, I'm not valued, I'm not needed, I'm not seen. I'm sorry and we need to do better. And I really hope this process will help us. But do you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ sees. He values you. He sees you. And he equips you to build up the church and reach Balaam. So to that end, shall we pray? Father God, I thank you that each of us have your spirit. All who trust in you, all who know you. and Thank you that our names are written in eternity. Thank you for the dignity that you give to each and every task in this church. Thank you for the value that you ascribe to every single personality, every single character type. And Father, we pray therefore that as, as leaders, you give us wisdom as supporting ligaments to grow the church, to build itself up in love as each part does its work. We pray that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.